Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Well, welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where we answer questions about everything nonprofit. I'm Andy Schurecht. I'm Stacy Wedding. And uh, we're going to get started in just a second. So um, one of the things that we've, we've talked about a couple of times is that the podcast is produced by the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. So Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits is the State Association of Nonprofits for Nevada. Um, they are a fantastic resource. If you have any questions about starting up a nonprofit and you don't necessarily think it's something that you want answered on a podcast, um, absolutely reach out to Ann, give him a call, send him an email. Um, tell, you might tell him that you don't want the question answered on the <laughs> podcast because we might just steal it anyway. Um, and, but there's a fantastic resource, and it's made up of all of the nonprofits in the state of Nevada. So um, we can connect you with people that are, that are doing similar work to what you're doing. If you have something that's very specific, we're just sort of a, a group that's out here to help to make um, charity work in Nevada much, much easier. So we're looking forward to, to helping you out with that. Um, but then another thing that we wanted to talk about. So we're on episode, I don't know, eight or nine or yeah, something yeah. like that. We've lost track. Probably. It seems like a million. Yeah. Um, we've had lots of conversations with people in the community about, hey, have you listened to it? What's your feedback? And, and some of the feedback we're getting, most of the feedback we're getting is actually very good. So people seem to like the podcast. They like the format. They like the things that we're talking about. But then every once in a while, we'll talk to somebody who will say, uh, there was something that you talked about that I have another opinion on. And... Um, I think that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. We want, I mean, here's the deal, right? Andy has his background. I have my background. And there's probably many things and many topics in the field of, in the sector of nonprofits that you could have five different opinions, five different perspectives on, and they're all valuable. So I would love to hear those differences of opinion or people saying, you guys are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So if, you know, if you have something that you think expands on something we said, or we said something and you think it's not right, absolutely reach back out to us because we will, we will either bring you on the show and you can tell us (laughs) through these microphones right here, like what the actual answer is. We would love to do that or we will make corrections or, you know, not that, not that anything we've said is wrong. (laughs) Oh, of course not. Although I do have to share a little funny story. So, you know, Andy and I had this whole little back and forth. So, you know, the nerds that we are, and I hope you don't mind me calling you a nerd, Andy, but the nerds <laughs> that we are, uh, Andy had said, oh, we're going to, you know, do another bi-weekly. I saw somewhere bi-weekly and I said, no, 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 really, Andy, it's bi-monthly. I mean, this is a bi-monthly podcast. It happens twice a month. Well, <laughs> guess what, folks? We are such nerds about this stuff. We both looked it up Respect your, you know, we weren't even together. We two both different looked it dictionaries. Up. Yes, two different dictionaries, <laughs> and found out that we were both correct. That I guess you can use either one to talk about the fact that this is produced twice a month. But point being that we are not the end all be all. We certainly know that we don't know everything. That is one thing we are definitely sure on. So we would love your feedback. Absolutely, and we love bringing in experts too. So if you're an expert on a particular topic and you want, you know, say you're the world's best at keeping volunteers engaged. Let us know because we want to talk to you about that because we get questions about the kind of thing all the time and we want to make sure that we get the, the best and most accurate answers out to you. And if you do have questions, again, this whole thing runs on questions. So if you have questions, even if you think they're stupid, even if you, I mean, 
there were, you know, you'll you'll hear some stupid questions. <laughs> there it is. Don't don't be afraid to ask. Notice we don't read any names, so yeah. so we're never going to call you out. You You're know? totally protected. You're totally anonymous, unless you want us to. We could do that too. Um, but but anything you want to know, we if we don't know the answer, we will reach out to people and we'll have them answer it on our behalf. This podcast works because of you, so we need your particip- participation. We need to hear from you, whether it's. Uh, you guys should, you know, add this to the format, whether it's here's a question or whether it's, you know, I totally disagree with what you said in last episode and we will make sure we cover it. Awesome. And with that, we will jump right in. All right, Andy, a local business wants to give us a percentage of each sale from a product, but one of our board members said something about commercial co-ventures. What is that? (laughs) Oh, gosh. So thankfully here in Nevada, there's no law um, about commercial co-ventures. So in some states, there's what's called a commercial co-venture law. And what that means is if you have a product and you say something like 10% of the proceeds from this product are going to be given to charity, the state wants to make sure that you are not lying. So the state puts in a, a commercial co-venture law, which says that you have to comply with a whole bunch of different requirements um, that, that allow you to say that or else you can get into trouble. Generally, it's, the, it's similar to in Nevada, we've got the charitable solicitation registration statement that you have to fill. It's an extra box that you right. fill out when you do your, um, when you do your articles and mm-hmm, put your, mm-hmm. your... Like your annual filings. Yeah, your and- annual filings. Thank you. The annual filings. Um, and you check the box, and basically you just agree that you've read it. <laughs> it's like pretty much all that it, it is here in Nevada. Um, but in other states, there are laws specifically about that, and you can get in trouble if you are not um, complying with the commercial commercial co venture laws. And that uh, is incumbent on the nonprofit, not the company. It's it's a little or bit of both. both. Yeah, okay. it's a little if you're because you're going into an agreement with it. So nonprofits need to know that it exists. And the companies need to be able to comply with it. So in Nevada, I guess it could happen in Nevada if your organization is more than just in this state. If you're working in multiple states and you have an agreement with an, an, another for-profit entity, actually it works the same with a nonprofit entity. So if you agree to sell a product um, with another nonprofit, you might in some states trigger the commercial co-venture and you have to actually file and say that this is what we're doing and this is why. Um, yeah, thankfully in Nevada, there's not a ton of that happening. Um, and Woo-hoo. well, you know, they, the laws go into place because someone screwed up, yes. right? Somebody like <laughs> figured out a way to cheat, and then they put a law to prevent you from cheating. So apparently, nobody's cheated badly enough in okay. Nevada for them to have Let's to hope get it around remains it, right? that way. Um, yeah. So, so the in the state that you're in, so the state association. So here in Nevada, you could call Ann and say, Ann, hey, are there commercial co-venture laws? And we will be able to give you the information about that. If you're working in another state, if you're in Ohio, you're in, I know Illinois has it, I know New York has it, Florida has it. If you're in one of those states, you can call their state association and say, can you tell me about the commercial co-venture laws? And they'll be able to give you very specific requirements for the state that you're in. And I think in addition, this is really probably uh, related to the question, not exactly tied to the question, but when we see things like this happen, it goes back to, again, I'm a huge believer. I probably should have been an attorney in another life, but putting things in writing. So you're really clear with the company that is doing, you know, giving you a portion of the proceeds of the sales. Um, What are their expectations of you? What are their consumers being told? Do you get to approve communications going out about it and listen to those first? Um, How are they reflecting your nonprofit as they communicate, because some of this is brand protection as well. And are you aligning yourself with the 
the company you want to be aligned with, um, kind of what are your responsibilities in promotion of the sale? And are they expecting you to drive so much traffic there? Um, so I think some of that being really just talking about expectations is so important in these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. And when you mentioned the brand, that's a, that's a big consideration. I mean, it doesn't have to do with commercial co-venture laws specifically, but does your brand, um, do you feel comfortable partnering with a particular for-profit? Um, yeah. are, they, are they using your brand to sort of sanitize the things that they're doing, and do you <laughs> want to necessarily be involved in that? Um, so yeah, those are the conversations. You know, not not all go- all money is good money. Right, Some money is so not true. good money. Right, <laughs> run for the hills. <laughs> right. Andy, here's one for you. What kind of financial information should nonprofits have on their website for the public to view? Mm, okay, so should I guess is the operative word, right? So the the IRS doesn't require that anything be on the website. They they require that you make it publicly available, like the 990, um, your most recent 990, and the 1023, and your 990, well, actually parts of the 990, not the whole thing, like the 990T, if you have to pay some tax, that has to go on there. Um, Schedule B, which is the listing of donors, doesn't have to be on there. If you look up in the upper right-hand corner of your 990, it'll say, um, I think, for public, um, oh, I can't think of that. <laughs> I can't think of the actual words, but it's like it says like for public access or for yeah, public yeah. whatever, right? Um, so it'll say the ones that you're supposed to make available will say that in the corner. The ones you're not supposed to make available or don't have to make available that won't say that in the corner. It doesn't. I mean, I you know I look at 990s all the time and I see people put Schedule B up all the time. Absolutely, you don't have to because you don't you know don't have to necessarily tell everybody exactly who all your donors are. When and you that's tell the probably IRS. a relief for those, for our listeners, because I think people struggle with wanting, you know, not wanting to share that information all the time. And we all know sometimes really good fundraising researchers and prospect researchers will go to other websites to look at donor names and oh, yeah. see if there's some connection. So I think for those who want to keep that confidential, at least that provides an, an avenue to do that. Yeah. Um, so, but the question isn't what, what am I supposed to? The question is, what should I put on there, right? right. So, so I, I think the for financial information, you're going to want to put some financial statements. If you've got an audit, put the audit on there. So you've got your audited financial statements up there. And then it's not necessarily financial information, but you probably want to have some program information up there too about what it is that your, your business is doing, what your nonprofit is actually doing in the community so that people can see that. Absolutely. Because if you think about it, Everything is pointing to the fact that donors, the first place they go these days when they're checking out a nonprofit is online, right? They check out the website. And I can share from my own perspective when I actually look at a nonprofit's website and I can't find what I need easily, it can get frustrating. Um, It's one of those things where you just sort of want to have a place where you can real quickly sort of check off some boxes in your head. And I think donors feel the same way. So having that those audited financials, being really transparent. I mean, today's donors, I, I don't know if you feel this way, Andy, but today's donors, I think many of them are more skeptical or you have to build trust. And so transparency is a way to do that, saying, hey, here's who we are. Here's our annual report. Here's maybe our audited financials. Here's our 990 that isn't public yet on GuideStar, but that you might want to check out for the last year. Um, yeah. I also think sort of the the big hot button with a lot of donors, and I know it's a debate that we all have, 
is the program and admin expenses and fundraising expenses for an organization. And, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the reality is donors are looking at that. So having a pie chart or something that shows here's how, you know, how dollars are being spent within the organization, which they can find on the audit and some, you know, some of the other financials as well. But having just making it simple for donors um, probably is going to help build a relationship with them, even if it's just online. Yeah, and the that's an interesting thing that to put the pie chart of the of overhead, what's overhead, what's fundraising, what's program. Um, if you don't do that, I mean, the, it's just a division problem. The donors yes. are going to be able to do that pretty easily. Anybody yes. looking at your, if they can see what's public on GuideStar, they can do that calculation. Um, but I think GuideStar is an interesting place to look because they just recently changed the way their um, their seals work. It used to be like the organization got bronze, silver, gold, or platinum. And now they've added the word transparency. I think it's just in the last year or so they added the word transparency. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to increase the transparency of those organizations that, that are members of GuideStar. And so if you go on GuideStar and you look at, you know, what do I need to put in at bronze level, they will say it has to be, <clears throat> they will say it has to be your your name of your organization, your 990 has to be up there, the board of directors, staff, and some program information, um, your like NTEE code, really basic stuff to get bronze. And everybody should have bronze. Everybody. That should be super That's easy. That's basic. And then look at silver and gold and platinum because it's not that much more information and it's stuff that your donors are going to want to see, like what good things are you doing in the community and all kinds of other information. I think that's a great place to go just to get an answer to that question. So it's not just financial information. It's what information should be made available, and that's kind of the answer there. It's a great marketing tool for nonprofits that doesn't cost anything and that nonprofits really can access when donors are doing their own research. And a lot of donors today are pretty savvy, and they know to go to GuideStar. I also I had um, an organization talk to me recently say, oh, well, I put, I put GuideStar as a link on the website, and so isn't that enough to financial info? And I would say... You know, it's great to point donors there, but then you get them, now they're now redirected off your page. So if there's, and your website, so if there's a way to take some of what you've already given to GuideStar and put on your own website, so again, you're kind of making it seamless for the donor, why not do it? Yeah, and and donors do look. They go onto your website and they want to see the board up there. They want to see the staff up there. They want to see financials readily available. If they go to your website and you say you're a nonprofit, but you don't have all that stuff, you're, they're just going to click away and find somebody new. Um, one more thing, and it's not technically financial, but it is the one thing that you're required to have on your website in Nevada that I think 80% of websites in, nonprofit websites in Nevada do not have this information. You have to have information about your charitable solicitation registration statement through the state of Nevada. So the Secretary of State makes you do the charitable solicitation registration. You basically just check a box and say that, yes, we have it, but the statute actually requires that you put information like your address, your mailing address, as well as that you can take tax-deductible donations that you are a 501c3. It's just those three pieces of information need to be any place on your website where you're accepting a donation, and I'd say a huge chunk of nonprofits do not have that. The um, well, Now that we've said it on the podcast, right, they, I, they're going to start cracking down. <laughs> they haven't actually cracked down on it, but they can. So the, the attorney general could just decide one day that he feels like cracking down on this, and there'd be a lot of pain. So it's probably the best to be out in front of that. Absolutely. Get ahead of the curve. We opened up a volunteer opportunity for office work. We're looking for someone to work two to two hours, three days a week during normal nine to five hours. 
We were getting few responses until yesterday when we received an email from an individual offering to volunteer for this. Here's the challenge. They need to do the hours at night, given their day job. Do you think I should accommodate this request and work a couple of extra hours a few times a week? Certainly have plenty of work to do, and I don't want to turn off this potential volunteer. I'm also trying to maintain some sort of family time. Your thoughts? I'm going to take this probably into my own realm these days of boundary setting and personal self-care. And the fact that this uh, person who, who wrote in uh, said that they you know are looking to have some sort of family time tells me a lot with this question. So if for some reason they hadn't put that or said, gosh, you know, I'm okay, I'm totally okay working, you know, maybe late hours or extra hours or whatever on the days of volunteers here, then I might respond differently. But I think just trying to be sensitive to the person who wrote in, um, I would say, you know, I think it can be tough, right? It can be tough to recruit quality volunteers, people who actually are the ones that, you know, we we really need to do a job. We can fall into the trap of almost being becoming like desperate or convincing ourselves that, you know, this sort of putting ourselves out for for this person is only momentary, you know, it's a momentary thing. It's momentarily. And at the end of the day, the reality is, is that you, there will be other volunteers and there probably will be other people. So I guess I, my gut instinct is say, I say, stick to your guns about you knew what you wanted. You wanted someone three days a week between nine to five. There's probably a reason you wanted them between nine to five, right? Because if there was something that someone could do as a volunteer at home, then I'm assuming that would have already been an option. And so for whatever reason, they need to be in the office from nine to five. So, I mean, maybe it's helping answer phones or whatever it could be. So I think it's about thanking this volunteer for their interest, looking at this as an opportunity to build a relationship with them and telling them, explaining to them why you need it in this time frame. Do they know of anyone else who might be able to help out you know, that's like them during this time frame, and then seeing if there might be some volunteer projects they can help you with. Obviously, they want, they want to help you. So are there other projects you have that they could help you with maybe after hours or on their schedule? So you think there's a way to come full circle, and it'll be a win-win with this volunteer. Perhaps they even have a colleague or someone that you can enlist them to help you think through um, finding what you need, and then also sticking to your own guns about, you know, this is, this is work time versus family time. We, we don't do a great job of that in the nonprofit sector, and I think we need to do more of it. The, I agree completely and have absolutely nothing to add. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's the answer. <laughs> and one thing I would say is, like, I get the sense that you want to be really responsive to your donors, and this, you've, you're treating this volunteer like they're a good donor, and you want to maintain that relationship, like you said. But, yeah, you do have to have some sort of, like, at some point you just have to say, nope, you know, I I can't. That's hey, thank not, you. But... Right? Thank you, but that's just not going to work. You know, and then, and I think people will, like most rational people will understand that. They're not, they didn't come to you and say, you know, how dare you? They right. came to you and said, I'd like to help. And so giving them an answer like, yeah, that just doesn't work for me and explaining why, I think they'll be fine. Absolutely. I mean, that's actually a good way to start a conversation about stuff. It is. Yeah, totally agree. I am a new executive director of a nonprofit that has been led by its founder up until recently. The board I have inherited has done very little because their founder and friend did it all, never engaging them. Is my board a lost cause? Do you have any suggestions on how to engage a board that has never been expected to be engaged up to this point? 
the good news is I don't think you're bored as lost cause. <laughs> a lost Yay. cause. I mean, that's the great news. I think it's going to take a little bit of time and education, and then you can determine if they're a lost cause. But, I mean, the reality comes in that if um, many times board members don't know what they don't know, right? They're not even sure what they are supposed to do. Many board members don't understand what their roles and responsibilities are. So when they have their friend, you know, Sally Sue, who asks them to be on the board and she's a founder and kind of doing everything, they're like, great, I, you know, I'm a placeholder. They don't even realize the fiduciary and governance, you know, responsibility. So I think it's an opportunity for some education and some training to start. Uh, perhaps it's at a board retreat or even at a board meeting that you can bring in a professional to um, share with the board, here's what some best practices are, and here's what it means to be on a nonprofit board. And, you know, along with that, having some honest discussion with the board about what kind of board do they want to be, and you as a new executive director, what kind of board, um, what kind of support are you looking for from your board as a partnership with you? Um, having some of that honest dialogue right at the beginning, it's it's a time of transition. It seems like a huge opportunity to sort of start fresh and see And the reality is, is some of them are probably going to say, you know what, my allegiance was to Sally Sue and she's no longer there. And I, this sounds like way more than I signed up for and way more work than I realized. And you may lose them. And that's okay because you certainly don't want board members who aren't, you know, exercising their fiduciary duties. So, you know, this, this question is kind of based like on after the fact, like, so the, the founder and person that's done everything is already gone. What would you recommend to nonprofits that still have that that founder that's in place um, to be prepared for when the the founder decides you know I'm I'm done or dies or whatever? That's a great question. I think there's uh, really thinking through and sort of if if you have a planned process, right? We're going to assume there's a planned process where you know the founder is going to be you know sort of moving away from the organization in the next six months or year or whatever that is. You have time then to actually, if you are on the board and you do happen to know what what you should be doing or maybe has never been done, it's a great opportunity to come up with that transition plan of what what do we want, you know, our next board to be like? How do we want to um, have board members who perhaps can even be part of our, you know, process of helping us find the next phase or our next executive director since the board's part of hiring that person. So I think, but that again makes the assumption that you have a board that knows that may, or you have at least one board member that knows that there's more to be desired. So if you have kind of a board that has no clue um, about what they should be doing, (laughs) then probably they're not going to be thinking about any of this. But my hope is that there's at least one person out there, or if there's, um, you know, some opportunity that uh, there's staff that interact with the board or somebody that, you know, that maybe the board members will be listening to this podcast, right? And they can actually put up an ex- put out an executive transition plan because in some ways, I think that has got to be a planful process of what does it look like having the founder leave? I mean, that's a whole other um, topic of how do we prepare as an organization? What does our next board look like? Yeah. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's, so I, I've been with at least two organizations that were run by a founder, um, the founder wasn't a board chair. The founder was an executive director. So remember the board from the executive director CEO standpoint. Um, and in, in both cases, the executive director decided that you know, they were done and they wanted to move on. And, and we 
very well. We, you know, both organizations had relatively large staffs too. So we we spent the time to put together the transition plan to say, this is what this is what we have. This is what this person's strengths were, um, and to let the board know that when they were bringing on this new person, that that they weren't necessarily going to have to replace all of those strengths. That there are ways that we could shore up some of the things that this person was good at um, without having to bring in an exact clone. Um, and also to let the rest of the board know that you know it was okay that staff was actually smart enough to run the place, like regardless of whether the founder was there. The founder was the the founder, and and should take you know most of the credit for the success of the organization. But but once the founder had left, that you know the, that we kind of have it figured out now. You know we that leadership is great, but we don't necessarily need that person here anymore, and we can keep going by ourselves. So I think if you can get the staff to help drive that process too. And to be part of the, like, what, you know, because staff really knows what you need. Like, the board thinks they know what the organization needs, but the staff really knows what the organization needs. Um, so to get staff input, I think, would be a... And I think that works really well if you have a large enough staff to do that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> definitely a big organization solution, right? Not yeah. A, a small organization solution is completely different. It so is. So if you're talking about where the, where the board chair is also the single staff member who does everything unpaid and then that person leaves um that's a completely yeah. different question yeah it can get sticky and sometimes it gets a little bumpy along the way i do love the transition plans as much as you can do them because it's an opportunity to reflect on what's worked and what you know just like there's different boards that are appropriate at different stages of an organization i think the same comes with you know paid staff leadership, right? So a founder is oftentimes great for a certain period of time, and then it's time to get somebody who can take it to the next level or just sustain what's already been built. Yeah, and, and there are staff members that are like that too. Like I, my, my personal preference is to work for organizations that are just starting out and growing. And then once they get to that sort of steady state where we're doing the same thing over and over again, I get so bored. And I just, I'm the worst person that you want because I keep, I'm like a, you're twiddling your like thumbs. Like a border up. collie. I just keep tearing up the garden. Like, what are Trying you doing? Trying to find something. Yeah. yeah. Just, is know. there this a problem? Is, let's fix something. I don't, you know. So, yeah. So, you know, there's there's definitely people for that. The, I think one of the things that bothers me about this question, too, especially in really small organizations that don't grow past zero board or zero staff members, mm -hmm. you know, so those tiny organizations. Um, if, you know, what happens if, it's the founder, this person's the, all of the impetus for the entire organization. They've built a board of friends, and then they decide to step away. They get too sick to continue working on it, or, you know, that person just can't continue. Um, like, isn't rolling up and saying, yeah, we had a good run an option, too? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, it's... It's okay. I, I think sometimes we all think we need to, our nonprofit needs to last forever. And there are times where maybe it served its purpose for a certain period, or maybe there's other organizations that now are doing a better job or have grown to a point where they've kind of, we're duplicative to a point where we're not adding any value to our communities we serve. Um, we've got to take and have an honest assessment. And just like businesses don't last most, bit, I mean, how many businesses do you know that have lasted forever? Right. Right. It doesn't happen. And I, I mean, there's there's stories of really big organ like the March of Dimes, right? The March of Dimes was originally um, give one dime to help eradicate polio, and then we got to that point, um, and and then they just moved on to something new. So they, you know, because they had this big organization, they're good at fundraising, and they thought we can broaden our mission to include some other things. Um, but that doesn't that's not the only way to do it. And you're right, like most businesses don't no. like you know there's 
like no blacksmiths, that many blacksmiths <laughs> around that are like fixing exactly. horseshoes because you just don't need that anymore. Exactly. That's an interesting thing. It's more, much more philosophical of a question than we usually yes, answer. Yes. I don't know if I'm equipped for that. Oh, uh, me neither. <laughs> Unless I have a lot of coffee or some alcohol. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we should talk about this longer, but then we would just be talking. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Nonprofit Everything, where we chat about everything nonprofit and everything that's on your mind. As a reminder, we would love for you to write in some of your questions. You can reach out to us uh, via the Ann website, or you can look at nonprofiteverything.com and check us out there and submit your question, and we'll make sure to get to it. So we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us, and a big thank you to Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits for making this possible. Mm-hmm.